speak every moment, but are we willing to listen? Are we willing to open our hearts and our minds? Welcome this morning, as uh, Pastor Samuel said, my name is Samuel Echevarria. I'm the original Samuel. Um, Somehow my name got stolen from me though, so now I'm just Sam. And this morning we'll be in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 10. I'd like to welcome all of you in the name of the Lord. It's a pleasure and a privilege and an honor and a weight and a responsibility to be here. But thankfully the Lord is faithful to always impress upon me the instant I walk up here that I am unworthy. I really am unworthy, but he is worthy, and he will preach, and we will listen, and he will be glorified. I hope today from the music you've heard, from the prayers you've heard, from the scripture you've read, if there's one thing that you take away this morning, we have such certainty, do we not? The word speaks so boldly about the certain things in life. How can God be so certain? Wait, forget that. How can God be so certain? Well, he is certain. But yet you and I have been brought into the certainty of his word and his power. He speaks, we listen, we stand on his promises. They never fail. Yet, even as Christians, we live in a world of uncertainty. There is so much uncertainty that surrounds our lives. We prayed this morning for those of you who are graduating, and we praise God for you. And the world is open, and it is your oyster. Although I don't, I don't like seafood, so I don't understand that metaphor. But it is your oyster, and you're supposed to do something with that oyster. But yet we pray because we do not know what will happen. Right? There is uncertainty. And the uncertainty of our lives, it's, 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 it's part of what it means to be human. And that uncertainty starts with our birth. And as we grow and age, it presents itself in many different ways. This uncertainty, how do we measure what will happen in the future? I see my boys climb trees all the time. And I wonder, are they certain that they will not fall? Are they certain that they will not hurt themselves? Because I am certain they will. But their minds are focused on a task, and then the idea of certainty doesn't come in. But as we age and we pass through seasons, when we become young adults, the world of uncertainty starts to grow, does it not? Who will we attach ourselves to in marriage? What will our jobs be? How will our children come out? How will I make it tomorrow with this pain and suffering I'm dealing with? We live in a world of uncertainty, and there is no season of rest from uncertainty not from the moment of youth and birth to the end of our lives here on this earth does uncertainty ever leave us. For we are even uncertain of the day that we will not be here anymore. The Lord is certain, but we are not. So you see the title of this today's sermon is on Christian probabilities. I got very excited uh, because many of you know I teach statistics. Um, so uh, I, I apologize now if it got, I got too excited, but I wanted to talk about Christian probabilities because to deal with uncertainty, you may not know this, but to deal with uncertainty, we turn to probabilities. We turn to decisions and actions based on experience or based on what we've been taught that we think 
we think will end up in a certain way, right? And that's called living on probability. Now, I pray that most of us, if not all of us, live on the certainty of God's word. But even in the, within the certainty of God's word, there is some probability to our choices. God allows us the freedom to choose, and we try to make the best decisions. We play the probabilities in our youth, do we not? What school do I go to? What career am I going to choose? How do I prepare myself? Um, we play the probabilities as young children. Boys do it much better than, than, than young girls. I can jump from one roof to the next without hurting myself too badly. We play these probabilities as young people. And then to adulthood, do I take this job or that job? Well, let me look at the data and let me look at my experience and let me try to make the best decision. But today's reading, today's word for us helps us to understand how God views probabilities. And especially how God views probabilities when it comes to our faith in him, our belief in him, our worship of him, and our obedience to him. These are the important probabilities. That's why I call them the Christian probabilities. The non-believer worries about cancer, a job, home values, car prices, gasoline costs this summer. But the Christian we must worry on a whole different set. We must focus and meditate on a whole different set of probabilities, a whole different set of certainties. So if you would turn to me to 1 John this morning, let us open God's word. If you have a pew Bible that's been placed there in the chair in front of you, you will find this reading on page 1055, page 1055. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Let us pray at the hearing of God's word this morning. Lord, we praise you that this morning we might come and we might listen to your word full of power and glory and certainty. And Lord, we pray that we would truly listen with open hearts and minds, that we would meditate solely on what you would have us focus on this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
You know, from time to time, I come across statistics that inform me on some topic of importance in society. I like statistics. I education. I'm a professor. I like to hear statistics about education, health, crime, the economy, poverty in America, statistics on the family. And as many of you know, I have no fear in relating these statistics to many of you as we discuss these issues. Call it an occupational hazard, being a sociologist and a statistician. And I know many of you think I make up most of the statistics I spout. I know that, yes. <laughs> and you are correct probably about 75% of the time. <laughs> I mean, we all know that 80% of all statistics are made up on the spot anyway. Now, why do I talk about statistics? Why all this talk of statistics? Now, before you get nervous and somehow think I got confused and forgot this is a sermon and not a statistics class, um, I want to talk about statistics because they're important, and they do two things. First of all, they summarize experiences of many people in a way that we can try and make sense of. They summarize experiences. They, they give us the average. And second, statistics are the language we use to be as precise as we can about the probability of something happening in the future. So two things statistics do. They tell us about the average experience and they tell us about what might happen in the future. And recently, here's some statistics that caught my eye and they involve Christians and their attitudes and behaviors. So here's some statistics that I hope will help us get to today's focus on being and living in probabilities. 75% of Americans surveyed belong to one of four Christian groups, evangelicals, historically black churches, mainline Protestant churches, or Roman Catholics. 75% of people in this country say they're one of those four Christian background churches. So that's three out of four. So we're the majority. We win, right? No, it's not that easy. And also in the areas of belief and behavior, 71% of people surveyed believe in God with absolute certainty. 71% believe in God with absolute certainty. 58% pray at least once a day. 50% say religion is very important in their lives. 50% say religion is very important in their lives. 39% attend religious services weekly. So it's quite possible that our affiliation and our labels don't match up with our behavior when you look at these statistics. And our attitudes and on some timely topics. Here's one that I, that I am interested in right now. 14% of evangelicals favor allowing gays and lesbians to legally marry. 33% of black Protestants. 46% of mainline Protestants favor gays and lesbians to legally marry. And 52% of Roman Catholics favor gays and lesbians to legally marry. And I tell you this only because here's another example of statistics that help us understand the average and the probability. And finally, 33% of all adults including born-again Christians, who are married now have been divorced, 33%. And currently, there's a 40 to 50% likelihood that a marriage will end in divorce in the United States. And that 40 to 50% is no different whether you say you believe in Jesus Christ or not. So these statistics should be alarming and saddening. And the church is not immune to attitudes and behaviors that call to question our knowledge, our understanding, and our commitment to Christ and his teachings. But thanks be to God that he has equipped us with some important answers, some certainties. 
And I want to take you now to 1 John because there was a time 2,000 years ago where there were some uncertainties about the faith and some uncertainties about what it means to be a Christian. And it is in this world of uncertainty that John, the, the Apostle John, wrote to the churches in Asia. And what's important about this letter and the three letters, it is quite obvious that John was writing to combat false teaching. Already in the church in Asia, there was false teaching and false teachers, leading to false knowledge and false behaviors. And John, given the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to these churches, to these, these members, to these people sitting in pews and praising God, and wrote to them to try to correct because there was error in their midst. And the way that the Holy Spirit inspired John was to give us these letters. And today I'd like to focus on the first 10 verses because it is in these that I think there are two sections in, these letter, in this letter, in this section of text. One talks about Christian certainties. So the first point today I'd like to focus on is Christian certainties, or what I also like to call the right attitudes. Christian certainties. And if we look at the text, we find, wow, there are some Christian certainties. The first one is that Christ is eternal and corporeal. Christ is eternal and corporeal. Eternal, no beginning and end. Corporeal has a body, has a substance. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see the power in that statement? It's almost like John is trying to convince some, somebody of a certainty. And John is saying, we, those Christians, they heard, they saw with their eyes, they looked at, and they have touched. Who have they touched? Jesus Christ. But when was Jesus born? Well, he has never been born or died. That which was from the beginning. So Jesus is both eternal, and this is the teaching that John must put out there right at the beginning. Jesus is eternal, always has been, always will be. But he was also corporeal. He became flesh. And this we proclaim concerning the word of life, Christ himself. So this is a certainty that you and I must take into our hearts that Jesus is eternal, yet he also did become flesh. Now, why is this important for us today? Because there are people who still do not believe one of those two ideas. They do not believe that Christ is eternal, nor do they not believe that Christ is corporeal. And the attitudes that John was battling 2,000 years ago still are with us today, even among people who call themselves Christians. I won't go into the details of this thinking, but just know this. Christ, because he is eternal, he is certain of all knowledge and history. He is certain of all that has come before, the creation of the stars and the galaxies, the rise and fall of suns and moons, the rise and fall of kingdoms and nations. Christ is a witness. He is certain. And we are certain in him. 
John continues with this idea in verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Do you see John is saying, I saw it. We saw it. We touched Christ. We are testifying. We are certain. We are certain that Jesus came. We are certain that Jesus died. We are certain that Jesus rose again. Powerful testimony by John. Powerful apologetics. A powerful defense of the faith because there were people who could testify that they saw the risen Savior. Okay? The Christian faith, that is what we are testifying to. The church itself is based upon the testimony of human witnesses who were there in the beginning and saw and spoke and touched Jesus Christ. So what is the result of this Christian certainty that Christ is both eternal and corporeal? Well, point number two, we Christians are now eternal and corporeal. We Christians have eternal lives and we have corporeal lives. In verse three, John states, we proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying here is that when you come to know Jesus Christ, you begin now to have an eternal life. But the process, the outcome, the probability is high. It's a certainty that if you say that you are with Jesus Christ, then you must also be with his believers. You must also be with his believers. You must be part of the church. So not only is Christ eternal and corporeal, we ourselves as Christians are eternal, but we are also saved into the body. We are saved into the body of Christ. With this conclusion, John writes, we write this to make our joy complete. Certainly, John relates our joy will be complete when we are with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, especially at the end of the age when we are with Him in heaven. So the completeness of our joy with these two certainties are the result of the fact that we have joy when we gather with the saints now, knowing that we have an eternal life, knowing that we are saved into the body here, and now knowing that we will be forever together with Christ. What a joyful message. And the last most important for this letter that John wrote to combat the false teaching was this, God is light. In verse five we read, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. John is now capping and finishing off how he has laid out that he is a testimony, he has witnessed, he can give testimony to Christ's eternal life, to Christ's corporeal life. He can give a witness and a testimony to the eternal life that we have and to the corporeal life, the life of the body that we have. And in that, the conclusion is we will have joy, it will be complete joy when you know these things. And here is the final certainty. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. What we're moving to now is the fact of right understanding of God. John is now going to combat 
as teachers were teaching wrong understanding, now John is going to combat the right behaviors or the right way we should live. And to begin that, at, to begin that certainty, he begins by saying God is light. And here, the light is visible, manifest. It is easily seen. There is no doubt. We are certain that God is light. He is purity, and it is easily seen. It is not hidden from anybody. And that light can represent many things. But I think in this testimony, John is trying to represent that light as well in the form of righteousness and moral purity. There is no sin in God. There is no, um, um, there is no what I'm going to call bad behavior. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is pure and righteous. And if you are a believer in him, there's a good chance that you should reflect this light. And the darkness, the wickedness, the Bible teaches, this is darkness, wickedness, moral impurity. And there are many, many definitions of that as we move through the word. So there are the Christian certainties. There for you and me, John lays them out quickly, powerfully. It's kind of, I feel like John is like trying to grab me by the, by the shirt and say, do you see these certainties? I was there. We were there. We've seen. We can proclaim. We know exactly what Jesus taught. We know what he looked like. We know what it felt like to touch him. But blessed be to those who believe and have not seen. Because we don't live in that world, do we? John did have an advantage in some ways. For it was easy for him to prove his testimony because he did see. You and I live in a world not of that certainty of that testimony, but we now live in a world of what I call Christian probabilities, where we now must test, we must test our own faith to see if we do believe these things and if we do act them out. Are we obeying God's word? The daily lived Christian faith every day is lived both within the corporate body, here in the body of Christ, and is lived out there in the world. Right? And in our lives, I think they are full of probability tests. They are full of probability tests. Tests of the genuineness of our faith and the sincerity of our fellowship and knowledge and understanding of God. And I think John begins to lay out on this these back section of verses 6 through 10. He begins to detail the low and high probability test of true believers as he is combating false teaching and false believers. And these are all detailed in the if statements. Did you notice we have many if statements in this section? If you count them up, you'll see this. Five if statements, and we're going to go through each of these. There can be certainty in the probability of our faith if we closely follow these tests. So I'm going to break these down into probability claims. I like, as a good statistician, I like probability claims. Like the probability in my household of having my wife tell me to pick up my clothes from the floor is 100%. Do you get that? It's 100% because there are always clothes on the floor that I leave. See, there's a certainty that gives me hope and faith, okay, every day. But look at what John's going to lay out. He's going to lay out very specific probability claims because the church that he is writing to in Asia and Ephesus, there are problems. 
And this group of false believers, if you, if you, I'll let you know, they're called Gnostics. They're teaching a false faith and a false behavior and a false attitude. So low probability claim number one, bad behavior, as I call it. Um, if I have bad behavior, what if I am constantly bad, doing bad things? I'm going to leave this real general. Listen to verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we claim to have fellowship with Christ, with God, but yet we walk in the darkness, meaning we continually do bad things without repentance, without any sort of attitude, corrective attitude, we have no fellowship and we are disobedient to God. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. We are not, not walking not with God in the light, but by ourselves in the darkness. We are in a perpetual state of lie. We are in a perpetual state of lie. I know that's grammatically not correct, but that's the way I like to say it. We live in a perpetual state of lie. We are morally impure, and we have no fellowship with Christ, the truth. Christ is the truth, Right? So this is a low probability claim. If you claim to be a Christian and continually ignore and disobey God's uh, commandments and God's expectations and God's behavioral uh, you know, plan for your life, I would say that you have a low probability that you may not be truly converted, truly saved, truly born again. There's a fantastic book that many of us are reading called Am I Really a Christian? It's by the author is Mike McKinley. And one of the paragraphs that really hit me hard when I read it was this. True Christianity changes people. You must understand this. Christ appeared to take away sins, and he came to destroy the works of the evil, of the evil one. That's easy enough. That means there is no way to be a Christian and to continue to love the things that Christ hates and came to destroy. Can't do it. There is no way to be a child of God and to continue embracing the sin which pleases the devil. And that really woke me up because I think sometimes we think we have the wrong attitude. You know, and I'm not talking about sin and struggle. I'm talking about a continual disregard for God and his commandments and his ways living in darkness. And how can you do that? Because Christ hates that. Christ came to destroy that moral impurity and yet some of us many of us still might find ourselves enjoying our bad behaviors john gives us a counter probability claim here's a high probability claim if we have good behavior fellowship and obedience result but if we walk in the light verse 7 as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we, have, when we are struggling, but yet can try to be more pure day in, day out, try to sin less, try to put ourselves in a position to obey God more often, there is fellowship. We will see obedience in our lives. There will be true fellowship and true accountability with God. There will be true fellowship and true accountability with each other. We will seek each other out. I have brothers who pray for me daily in this church. They pray for the temptations that I struggle with. They call me up. It's annoying. 
How are you doing today, Sam? I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. Oh, there's always something wrong, right? But they do that because they love me. And to me, that's a high probability claim. That's like, I, can, I can take that to the bank. I can say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling, for we're not perfect, but I'm moving in the right direction. Praise God that he gives us a way to tell, tell us we're doing well, we're going forward. And when that happens, who is with us? Christ, his blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You'll see this. Christ is either with you when you're on the right track, or if you're on the rock, Christ is not with you. These are these tests that we have to take. The next one is a low probability claim. I'm a good person. I'm a, yeah, I'm not so bad. You ever heard that before? You know, I'm not, even among some Christians, you know, I, it's not that bad. I haven't done that bad. I'm not like you. They talk to me that way, you know. Um, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we walk around just thinking in our hearts, I'm not a bad person, I'm a pretty good person, we are lying to ourselves. We are ignoring the simple fact that we are fallen creatures, that we are descendants from the first couple who disobeyed God, Adam and Eve, and that is our nature. It is our tendency. It is our proclivity. It is our probability. To recognize that or to not recognize that means that it's possible Christ is not with you. As the verse says, the truth is not in us if we claim to be without sin. But is there a counterclaim, a high probability claim? What if you confess that you're a bad person? Confessing I'm a bad person. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we confess that we are bad, that we, are, that we do make mistakes, that we do what we call sin, we are being honest about ourselves. And who is with us? Christ. Confession is an essential part of Christian reality. Confession must also occur, and really can only occur well, when it is within the fellowship. We are designed by God when we are saved, we are born into the body, and it is in the body that you start to meet people who you can then confess your sins to, and you should. And if you do not do that regularly, I would challenge you, seek out those members who you can trust and you can build a relationship to so that you might start to confess openly about your struggles, your sins, the temptations, so that they might pray for you and they might hold you accountable. Because confession spurs growth and holiness. Confession moves you into the light. It's a powerful metaphor because when you are standing in God's light, you are completely exposed how do you get into God's light? Confess. When you are meditating and the Spirit is in you and, you and the Spirit pierces you and says there's this sin in your life, the Spirit is moving you into the, into the light and you must confess. But it's a wonderful cycle because more confession happens, the more you grow. The better your Christian walk is, the closer your walk with Christ is. And Christ is there. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. He is just. 
finally a low probability claim. I've, done, I've never done anything too bad. Ever heard that? I've never done anything too bad. Again, John is hammering home these, uh, these behaviors that were present, these teachings that were being taught. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This one is now different. Instead of lying to ourselves about how we're not bad, if we claim we have not sinned, we are lying about God. We are lying about what God has said. And God has certainly said that sin is in us. Because if that weren't the case, then Christ would not have had to have come. But when you sin like that, when you claim that you have not sinned, you make God out to be a liar, the highest form of blasphemy, one of the most insipid and evil parts of the devil's plan to disrupt, to corrupt, and to destroy the church is to keep us all lying. How ironic that in society it is lying is the thing that we tend to brush off as not that big a deal. And I'm talking about all of it, people. All of it. You know, Diane says, where'd you go eat for lunch? And I, uh, I went to churches and I went to KFC. And I don't know why I lied, but I did. And there was no reason to lie. But do we do that? Do we try to hide little truths? Do we shade the truth? That is the devil's number one tool to keep us away from Christ, to keep the church destroyed. And I'm very, very passionate because it's a testimony to my own life. Lying is one of the hardest things to get rid of, especially if it's become a habit in your life. And every time you lie, you lie about God. Every single time. And the Jews consider that the highest form of blasphemy. So John is serious here. If we claim we have not sinned, if you are walking around and you can honestly tell me, uh, you, can, you would claim to me, well, I just don't have any sin in my life. You know, I'm, I'm, it's going to be hard for me to believe. Now, we don't all struggle with the same sin. We don't all struggle with the same frequency of sin. But the Bible has taught clearly that in, while we're in this world, we are still flesh and we will still struggle. And I pray that tomorrow you struggle less than today. And the day after that, you struggle less than the day before. That is the path of Christian holiness. But we've got to stop lying. When we lie, his word is not in us. The word of life, the truth, Christ, not present. So what are the results of this test? I'll finish here. Uh, these are the tests that John has given the church. And actually, John gives us the answer, and I'm going to skip to here, verse 2 of chapter, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Why is John giving us his test? He says, my dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. For all those that believe, Jesus sacrifice atones for or makes right with God our sins. But sin should not be a normal part of your lives. And by normal, I mean 
something that you don't worry about, something you don't deal with, something that you kind of push to the side and say, I'll fix it tomorrow, like the roof that's leaking. That is not the picture that John is painting here. You should be an active enemy of sin daily from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, so that you will have not a pattern of sinning. Test yourself. Probe your heart. You can be certain that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to atone for all the sins of all those who would believe past, present, and future. All of them. And Christ's sacrifice is more than enough to cover all of our sins and the sins of the whole world, everyone who would come to faith in him. This is critical for people were being taught in this time period that Jesus wasn't really the answer. Knowledge was the answer. If we just know what's right and what's wrong, we'll be fine. That's not the answer. Jesus is the answer. And because we were born of sin, Jesus, the sacrifice on the cross was required for us. So if you do not know about that sacrifice and you'd like to learn more, please come see me or or Pastor Samuel, the deacons. We'd like to talk to you about why this sacrifice is so critical, why this cross that we talk about so much is so important. The results are in. You need to make a commitment, a certain commitment to a life of holiness, and that life of holiness has to be 100%. Not the life itself, but your commitment to it. It can't be 90%. It can't be 80%. You need to commit 100% to a life of holiness, to a life where you desire no more sin. Matthew 23, 37 says, in Jesus' words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All, 100%. Jesus leaves no doubt that he does not want followers who are not going to give all of, certain, certainly give all of their life to him. All of it. Are you 100% devoted to walking in the light? It's not easy. It is, it is why we are here this Sunday morning to hear God's word preached, to sing his praises, to pray with him and to him because it's not easy and you cannot do it alone. So I challenge all of us to walk in the light, find somebody who will hold your hand, guide somebody that you know that is struggling into the light, pray, as the wonderful testimony of Susan Horton emphasized, pray for those who are struggling. And you yourself, all of us who hide that one little sin that we still don't wanna bring into the light, it's time, it's time. You are being held down in your Christian walk, in your Christian faith. And John is saying, simply put, if you live a whole life of sin and disobedience, there might be bigger issues. You may not be who you think you are. And there are churches today filled with people, sadly. And there are Christians today who label themselves as Christians who may not be. And we need to preach this gospel. We need to come alongside them, not in judgment, but in love, and say, how can I help you walk in the light? Do you understand what it means to walk in the light? My sin's not that bad. No, your sin's pretty bad. It's terrible. All of it, all of ours. 
All I do is lie a little bit once in a while to my wife. <laughs> really? It's the worst kind of sin there is, believe it or not. Let's pray. Lord, we give ourselves this morning to you. I pray, Lord, that we would all commit, myself at the head of the line, we would all commit to living 100% in your light. And Lord, sometimes we stumble, we fall out of the light. I pray, Lord, that we would have brothers and sisters who would pick us up and put us squarely back in the middle of your light. And Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters who would so readily, with love and patience and gentleness, point out the darkness in our own lives. For Lord, some of us, many of us, we're just not equipped to even see our own darkness sometimes. And Lord, I thank you for this body of believers here and all those gathered around the world because it is in these bodies, Lord, your bodies, that these things become reality, that they go from probability to certainty, that we can move away from wondering what tomorrow will bring and focusing more on how we will glorify you more. Lord, I pray for all of us gathered that we would rise up, that we would really be on fire to living more holy lives, to helping each other grow, to discipling each other, to sacrificing for each other, to love each other the way you loved us, full of sacrifice and selflessness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.